0: To be a street cop? Uh-huh. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. Today with me, and it's been a while. And uh, we're we're recording this via Zoom, so I could see your gorgeous angel face. <laughs> I have with us Zach Miller, um, who I. If you've taken my class, it sounds like I have a man crush on him, which I kind of do, just a little bit. And if you understood the way he comprehends and is able to deliver case law information, it's super important. And you know, it's funny. I, I actually just triggered something in my mind. You said something to me yesterday when we were discussing a, a post in the group where you and I both jumped in and tried to help clarify some misunderstanding from somebody who was adamant about how he felt about a certain topic, and outside of that topic. What you said to me is you don't think that police officers should be reading case law.
1: I don't I don't recommend it as a blanket statement anymore. I used to. Um, now, there are certainly some officers that I certainly would recommend that to. But just as a blanket statement, um, it's not like reading any other type of material. I mean, you have to understand how case First of all, how a case works procedurally, like when by the time you get a, a written opinion, what is what steps has this case gone through? Uh, what's the point of an appeal? Why are opinions written? What are the different terms uh, that the court uses? What do they mean? Um, there's quite
0: a bit to it. I've Googled um, a lot of terms uh, to know what they are. Like one that's interesting is de novo, right? That's constantly... Yeah. Right. And that's with a fresh set of eyes.
1: Right. Starting over, starting the review from from scratch, you know, and there's different rules, different courts have different rules about what cases they hear and what kinds of issues they can can decide. Um, and it can be very confusing. And you can very quickly and easily read a case and take away literally the exact opposite of what the court was trying to say. And then you go out and you promulgate that to other other folks and it just spreads misinformation. It's just, it's a, it's, if you're going to do it, you have to de- devote the time to learning how to do it first.
0: You know, and and I got to be honest with you. When you said that yesterday, I started thinking about this book. And again, I've always recommended this to people. It's a criminal procedure for law enforcement professionals. Uh, it really is a Cliff Notes version. Have you ever looked through this book at all? I have
1: something similar to it um, um, for Virginia officers. That's just the general one that you have,
0: right? This is the the this is the, the national one, not the Virginia okay. one. This is the one that okay. covers... You know, it's funny because he essentially is from New Jersey originally. So he actually references a lot of New Jersey cases to make his points. Uh Um, But, you know, I I find this to be rather easy to read. um, But at the same time, for a guy like me, it does not tell the whole story. So I recommend this book often. But, you know, as I go through it, I, you know, and again, I, I think that maybe not everybody should read case law, but certainly try it see what you think about it, see if you're actually getting it. And if it's really confusing to you or you're dyslexic, and I mean that with my heart, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Um, And I think you said yesterday, it takes a certain skill level to be able to understand and decipher what's going on.
1: And and then to be able to take it to the next step, to explain it to other people, you know, and that's, um, you know, if you're going to read it, then, you know, you need to have somebody handy nearby that you can reach out to, to get some explanations because, Um, it's tough. It's a tough skill. I I have a hard time with some, you got to read slowly. And
0: I read, I read these cases. Like I'm telling you, like this is, I'm going to do a, like I said to you before, I'm going to do a a live video on state versus Boston in New Jersey. I've read this case two or three times already. And before I read it, I have my highlighter Mm -hmm. and I'm going to find out the most important pieces that people need to know. There's the three paragraphs that actually fucking matter in here.
1: Yeah. You know? Figuring uh, out what, yeah, what, what is the holding? Like you got to figure out what the, what the case, what is it that the court is saying? What's the law of the case? So that's really what a case is about. What is the law that comes from that case? And that's very difficult to decipher in a lot of times.
0: There's actually a case in New Jersey where they talk about arresting for motor vehicle violations. And the, and the case is called uh, State V. This one, I'm trying to think what the other one is. Of course, I got to pull my program up rather quickly without making a big stink. And of course, I don't have it up right away. Um, but anyway, in that case regarding arresting for motor vehicle violations, actually my friend, Mike Galaro, who is you ever see that show, um, uh, the, the, the auto theft task force show out of Newark, New mm-hmm. Jersey, where they chase cars around and these like, in these like tanked up chase vehicles. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's on that. He's like the supervisor on the show and he made a case. Um, I don't know why it's slipping my mind right now. You know, I'm going to check in the interim, but there's some language in it. I'm going to actually read it to you. And how I explain it in class, because people, if you read it, and I hear people misinterpreting this, and it is, hold on a second. Uh, Where are we at here? Uh, Close. I know it's right here somewhere. So it's State versus Lark. And what what happened in Lark was basically, and this is for New Jersey people, uh, a traffic stop is made. The gentleman cannot produce a driver's license. So then Mike goes into the car to try to find the driver's license. Okay. So, and I think that, and again, I'm, I'm probably missing some details, but I think the guy was furnishing false information as well. Our court said, look, that doesn't trigger the probable cause to search a vehicle in this state. We're not going to have it. And they actually said, they cited that They have found that nowhere on the federal level that being allowed as well. Now, again, I've never looked into this topic for the federal level because I don't really have to because I don't teach this in other states. Um, but here's some language it said. The court said where the driver, the driver is without a license and persists concealing his identity, an officer may either continue to detain the driver for their investigation or arrest the driver under certain things. Now, the reason it says the driver on it is because the case had to do with one occupant of a vehicle, but it's very clear that it's what it should have said. I to explain this to people. What it should have said was a person subject to a summons who offers false information is subject to the same criteria. The courts did not recognize that police administrations, namely, are going to start telling people, nope, that's for drivers only. It says it very clearly. No, no, no. That's not what it fucking said. It said the circumstances were when can police arrest people? And if they can for motor vehicle violations, can they go into a car to look for documents? The court said you can arrest anybody who is Subject to a motor vehicle violation, who is now furnishing false information or persists concealing his identity or her identity. But what you can't do is go into the car to look for it. It doesn't spark or trigger the probable cause prong Mm -hmm. of the automobile exception to go into the car and look for an ID. What they're saying is you can't do that. Lock them up. Lock them up. Bring them in. Do it that way. Just don't go into the car to look for an ID. I don't know how other states look at that. Um, And again, I want to remind everybody, this is a piece of New Jersey case law. And I think that would form there maybe a Gantt search. Is that possible?
1: Um, yeah. If, if you had a search incident to arrest, if you had a reasonably there's evidence of that crime in the vehicle, such as their identification. And that is pretty much the, that's the standard view across the country. There was a Ninth Circuit case recently, a couple of years ago out of California, that held the same thing that you said regarding the search of the vehicle. You can't search a vehicle for ID uh, just because someone is refusing to identify themselves. I, I don't remember the name of it, but it was a federal case.
0: Yeah. And, and this one, so I have to explain in class, like, guys, what the court should have said was any person, but they said driver because there's a driver in this case understand what the case is saying, not talking about it, just the driver.
1: And that's a characteristic of a lot of case law is that's that's an example of a, K, a court deciding an issue very narrowly based on the facts that they have here. They're, the, the case was dealing with a driver, so we're going to resolve the question when it comes to a driver. The fact that they didn't mention passengers doesn't mean they're excluding them from the rule. It just means in this case, the holding is... Uh, pertaining to the driver you find yourself in a passenger situation in the future you would look to this case for guidance um and based upon the analysis the court goes through you would say oh, that sounds like the the same thing would hold true with a passenger so yeah it's not saying driver to the exclusion of all of only the driver to the exclusion of all others that's not how cases work
0: well and i explained it like this i mean imagine if the traffic stop is for a seatbelt violation on a passenger yeah it's I think different. the
1: principle would be the same.
0: Right. So people like in yeah. their mind have conjured up this some kind of uh, idealism that because the person's in control of the vehicle, they have some kind of uh, greater weight and interest in the motor vehicle violation. But what if they didn't violate anything? They're just the driver where there's another subject who is the violator. Now, in New Jersey, I believe under a motor vehicle code, you have to relinquish your information if you're operating a vehicle, if it's stopped for a lawful traffic violation. And, and That's, that's typical, most, right? Yeah, that's most states have something similar. to That even if you're not
1: the subject of the violation, I believe um, you still may have to identify yourself. And in that's a actually lot legislation.
0: States, that's not case law. It's legislation. Yeah, that's a statute. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. You know what's interesting? I uh, I don't know if you've read, and I again I'm just bringing stuff up that are being triggered off the top of my head. Have you ever read uh, Delaware case law? And if not, they actually have their time limit for an investigated detention on a hard, steadfast number built into their into their law. Not hmm. case law legislation, hmm. so it's uh, it's very very interesting, and I find it very comical. It's a good number; it's two hours. Okay, but you're also kind of going. You're departing essentially from the Fourth Amendment, wouldn't you agree? At a U.S. versus Sharp, when you're saying it's steadfast two hours, and just it's a reasonable amount of time. I, right. I sure, certainly hope
1: most officers wouldn't take that to mean that you can always detain someone for two hours on an investigative stop. The
0: language on it's kind of interesting, where. It's like it doesn't explain it very well. You'd have to yeah. have some interpretation through some knowledge of U.S. versus Sharp, 1985, to understand how that applies and what they meant by that. So it's, it's a lot of the stuff is vague. And yeah. if you're not picking up on it, you know, it's interesting, man. I know guys that, again, this has nothing to do with my friend Ed Esposito. This is not him I'm talking about. But I know people that teach promotional testing based on case law that literally teach you how to answer questions, but do not have any fucking clue on how it works. And this is not for Ed Esposito. I mean, Ed is a a gift to law enforcement. has nothing to do with Espos training. I think they're phenomenal. I'm talking about, I have met other people who teach promotional testing, who literally will self-admit, I don't know how to apply this in real life, but I know how to build SME questioning off of this. They can't in their mind apply it to the field
1: then I wouldn't be going to that guy for any kind of advice on how to do field.
0: How do you, how are you understanding this? Oh no, we don't see it that way. There's only one way to see it, Zach. You know what I mean? Like I was telling somebody this last night on the phone. I said, yeah, uh, Zach and I were on the phone very briefly yesterday discussing some of this stuff. It's not a a difference of opinion in these conversations that you and I are together having with these other people. It is, these are the facts. (laughs) Like You can't, there's no other interpretation of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah.
0: Tell, yeah express it's your frustration.
1: It's frustrating, um,
0: but you know, well, it's frustrating in the sense of how the how it's responded to, rather than how it should be responded to, right? So there's a big difference between going, I disagree. I have this case, da da da, and you completely say a different case. It should be, hey, look, I'm a little confused. I have this case. How does this apply to? What's your thoughts on how this applies to this? Right. You know, that's a very big characteristic of somebody who is willing to listen versus somebody who thinks they know what they're talking about. And scary thing is a lot of those people um, tend to be what in their area or the department, the people they go to for case law. Oh yeah. There's that there. fucking frightening dude. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've had people who like, literally we had a, when I was new doing this and I was showing up and I was teaching some case law, we had a Sergeant from an agency in New Jersey who, um, I mean, he was fucking clueless. And he called me. He's like, I'm the case law guy here. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. You literally have no idea what you're talking about. It's like I read case law. You could read it all you want, yeah. but you absolutely have no fucking clue what you're talking about. And I had he just could not and he just kept saying the same thing. Well, we can agree to disagree. I go, there's no disagreement here. You are literally not understanding what the courts are saying. You have no fucking idea. And it's it's amazing to me that a prose assistant prosecutor calls you for advice. You have no fucking clue what you're talking about. Uh mm-hmm. so actually to bring him into Um, so we have two lieutenants where I worked at all times. So they have to be in the lieutenant's office and we had real good relationships with these guys and they're very good at case law. That's the game in New Jersey to get promoted to civil service, civil service agency was to, you're going to read, you're going to have to have case law knowledge. Right. And they, they basically, the test questions are here's a scenario. And basically the scenario is, I'm sure you've seen these questions before, but I'm doing it for the audience. Uh, Trooper so-and-so responds to a broken-down motor vehicle, walks up on the car and notices, um, I don't know, nervous behavior. It, it's just literally the same fact pattern as a case that you had to read, and then it's A, B, C, D, Those like the questions you make. Mm-hmm. Can he compel identification at this point? A, yes, because this. B, no, because of this. And that's the whole thing. So these guys literally sit in the office and read case law because they're going to test up to the next level. Right. So we brought this guy in and um, put him on speakerphone. And these are two of the better guys who knew case law at the agency. And I said, listen, I got this this sergeant from this police department. He's fucking clueless. We're going to call him. And let's go over five things that he doesn't understand. And they're sitting there going like this to me. Who, who is this guy? He's a fucking supervisor. Right. They're like, who is? Put him on mute. What are we? Who is it, this guy? And they're like telling him, like, what are you talking about? Dude, you literally aren't understanding any of this. And he starts saying it again. But we'll agree to disagree. You know why? Because they were tooting his fucking wiener at his agency, blowing his head up, and, no, and he didn't like it, man. Couldn't get his head deflated.
1: Right. Well, if you, have to, if you have to identify yourself as the case law guy, that should, should be your first clue that he's probably not the case law guy. You
0: know? There's actually a slide in my program that says I'm, I'm not an expert. Because, like, look, I understand some of it. I want to have a conversation with everybody about it. But I'm certainly, and maybe I could even, in some kind of court proceeding, be offered... Some advice on some things that I may know, but I'm not sitting here pretending like I'm like live, breathe, eat, eat and shit case off, like Zach Miller does. Right. <laughs> that's that's your forte. That's your expertise. It's what I do. It's 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 what I do. Yeah. And I love it. I just, you know, as as we progress forward, mm-hmm. um, the time in my day is very interesting. And I you know, I I do spend a lot of time writing programs. And, and let's face facts, the the programs from state to state are basically redundant with different names on it. mm-hmm. It's the same thing everywhere, right? <laughs> Here's is. the things you're allowed to do on a traffic stop. This is what the federal government said. This is what your state said in this case. Right, The same exact thing. So anyway, I, I thought it was good to talk about. And I think people will get value from that. I also don't want to dissuade people from trying to self-educate, but just be aware if you are self-educating on this stuff, and I and implore you to do so, make sure you're understanding what you're reading. And if you want to ask us, we're open to offering to help i've been reading case law now for about oh i don't know 12 years so um and i read it frequently you know and and, and i'm still learning things to be honest with you mm-hmm. not that i'm learning things i'm just like oh that's where that came from look at this weird little fucking case that i haven't seen this is where this came from like i'll dig deep mm-hmm. and i'm trying oh that's cool you know what's a good one is we were talking is um I just did a class in Cleveland and we were talking about the ability to arrest somebody with a canine alert. And Cleveland's interesting because Ohio goes according, they have their own districts with their own appellate divisions. Right. And you've got to follow your own appellate divisions. You're certain It's not a statewide appellate division. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, even though some of them kind of disagree a little bit on some things, they all agree on the same overall general concept of you can't just arrest on a canine. And this is the language that's actually confusing as well. And I can see where people could argue with their administrations on this. It says a canine alert alone will not suffice to establish probable cause to arrest passengers or of a motor vehicle. And I said, I told this class of guys, here's the big word alone, right? And that's why they lost this case. Right. The failure to articulate additional circumstances. And guys, when that, when will that, you know, when will, when will canine alert establish probable cause to arrest? And I remind them that, well, certainly not on a free air sniff with somebody who has no idea what the fuck you're talking about. But certainly on a on a motor vehicle stop with a overwhelming amount of reasonable suspicion, followed by a canine alert. How was that re- I don't you gotta read case law where it was good and case law where wasn't where it wasn't good. Right. The federal standard says what? Alone in some circuits? Well, like, yeah, the 10th circuit. Well, how about Royer? I mean, Royer well, said well, well, it's a canine
1: alert to a particular location is probable cause to search that location. Mm-hmm. Like a car, uh, the alert to a car is probable cause to search the car or a package or an individual person, but not a class of people. Right. Um, so yeah, it's not by itself enough to search the occupants the passengers in that. that um, Ohio you'll, need,
0: you'll need to articulate their involvement and, and yeah. acknowledgement on, on, Essentially nothing more than reasonable suspicion. Yeah. And I would yeah. suggest using the RAS checklist to know what that means. I had a guy ask me today and I, I could tell I was getting a little um um I don't like a little little bit of a ruse going on. So the guy goes, Hey, uh, what's the case that says nervous behavior alone is not enough to search a car or to, to uh, ask for consent? I said, What do you mean by that? Like, there are many cases that said there was not enough reasonable suspicion. And I want to remind people that generally these interdiction stops where the where the time limit has been expanded or extended beyond the initial inception of the traffic stop for the scope and purpose of the stop, they do get tossed because people fail to articulate reasonable suspicion. That's the whole thing behind it. So knowing that that is the issue, we're trying to resolve that issue. What other issue is there when it comes to extending a motor vehicle stop other than the failure to articulate reasonable suspicion? There is nothing else. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, as long as, yeah, as long as you're focused, yeah.
0: anytime you deviate from the mission of the stop, you got to
1: have reasonable suspicion or do it without adding time to the stop.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. or I, I guess you put some kind of disengagement. In yeah, ending <laughs> the stop and transitioning to a yeah. But And that's you know, tough. I mean, that's tough to pull off. I mean, people think they pull that off, Um, but you'd really have to. And I always tell people, when you're doing things like voluntary consent, and Zach, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I will invite you to this. What you communicate to somebody is the most important thing. There's nothing more important in a voluntary consent procedure to let people know that it is voluntary, and how you communicate what that is. That's the only thing they're going to analyze in court when you come to court is, what did you say? How was it said? And all of the other circumstances. So people say, well, should we turn off all the police lights? I mean, it's a factor to consider, but I think that you could always use your words to say, look, we have to leave the lights on on the side of the road here because it's dangerous. But I don't want you to think that it means that your continued detainment is, is required. You actually are free to leave. If you would like to choose to go back into your car and leave, you are more than welcome to do so. However, I do have a few more questions for you. That's very different than, hey, before you go, can I just grab you for a second? Right? We're talking about a clear communication of us explaining. So people say, "Well," You know, you say, Dennis, we can get a consent. Well, people are in custody and their Watson. And I said, of course you do. But the consent's going to be inherently different. You're going to have to add a lot more on generally, in my opinion, versus getting a, I guess, a, a, a normal consent in a, in a typical circumstance. You have now a full-blown arrest and you're trying to achieve consent. So your consent's probably going to sound more like, look, you're under arrest, okay? Now, before you answer this, I want you to know, I have no interest in making your life any more difficult than it already has become. We will not treat you any differently. And you have the right to refuse and say no to anything that I was, want to say. But at this point now, you're under arrest and, and, you know, you've been with us before and you know, we're decent guys. And, you know, every single time you're there, we treat like a, an adult. Is that right? Like, Again, you get treated fairly and said, nothing's going to change this time. We have enough probable cause to apply for a search warrant for your house. Um, and some of that procedure is I have to call a prosecutor and get an Prosecutor approval and see if a judge will sign off on the search warrant. Now, I can only tell you we can apply for it. I can't tell you we'll guarantee you get to get it. Uh, I could tell you that if I had exigency at this moment, I would be able to enter into your house with the probable cause that we have. Here's the probable cause that we have. Before I go and call a judge, and again, you could say no to this, um, would you give us consent to search of the house? That's a really good way. And you could tell mm-hmm. me. Did you like that dissertation of consent?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I think the uh, all voluntariness, whether we're talking about like a waiver of your Miranda rights or you're your consenting to a search, it's all assessed in the totality of the circumstances. Um, but the words I think your officer, the officers are using are, are at the top of the list of those factors and words can mitigate some of the other uh, seizure or coercive elements, like the the lights flashing. You know, you yeah. can use your words to mitigate that. Uh, the handcuffs and all those kinds of things. The words are the, in almost all the cases, are going to be the most important.
0: Yeah, so communication is key, and I, I I am I emphasize that. And I'm you know I'm collecting this data and trying to analyze. And how do you guys do this better? And I think a lot of people are very, um, you know, apprehensive to use language like that because they are afraid of rejection. And the answer is, is I would rather be rejected and have to go through the warrant procedure or call for a dog rather than trying to explain on a suppression hearing or on a trial that my consent wasn't voluntary or the the, the consent that I requested was overly vague. Right. And I watch it. I watch guys do this. Can I search car? Uh, sure. Cool. Stand right here. Um, may work a hundred times, but I'm telling you, when the guy with the Maserati or whose grandfather has deep pockets and they hire the, the guy whose retainer fee is $25,000 or $50,000, when mm-hmm. he shows up and he hears a consent like that, he's going to yeah. eat you for breakfast.
1: Because we right. have to prove it's voluntary. He doesn't have to prove it was not. We have to prove it was. So, and that's kind of hard when that's all you got. Right. right. Some, right. Something like that. Yeah.
0: Even, even with it, you know, like people always say like, you know, consent is probably in the Fourth Amendment arena, the most powerful tool law enforcement has. because as long as you're following a a what's cohesive to your state's consent procedure. Um, and when I say your state, that obviously encompasses the Supreme Court of the United States, because that's where it all starts. But you may have to get more specific to your state. For example, in New Jersey, we depart from Schlenklofe v. Bustamante, and uh, you have to offer the right to refuse. I'm actually not opposed to it. I think it's a very smart move. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you should have tossed a case on it, but I think because... Some states will agree with the Fourth Amendment. but They also always offer, you don't have to do it, but it's a major factor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: I, I, I emphasize to people that if you can understand a voluntary consent procedure, and you do it well, and you understand what it means to be voluntary, and how do you find it out? You read the good ones that were voluntary and the, and the ones that weren't, and mm-hmm. you follow suit, you use your common sense. It's a very powerful tool in the Fourth Amendment. It is very, very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, good, good candor. Let's, uh, let's let you fire off with the things you want to talk about this week. Zach Miller.
1: Um, so we had a question on the group, I don't know, a few days ago about uh, touching the hood of a car and whether that was a search. Uh, actually a really interesting question, a good question. Um, and that, and I think it is, I think it is a, uh, for a police officer to touch the hood of a car, I should qualify that tech to, text the temperature of the car to see if the car has recently been operated. Okay. Cause that's going to be key. Your intent, what is the intent of the officer? Uh, and it is a search, I think. Um, and it's, it goes back to this case called United States versus Jones, uh, from 2012, I think this was the GPS case where the officers attached a GPS to a car Big case. Um, it was, it was huge. It was huge. And the fact that it's changed the, the way we look at, how we define searches. I mean, it really wasn't a very consequential. It was Jones. It was consequential to him because they held the search was, uh, it was a search. Uh Um, So, but so the takeaway is when, when you physically intrude upon a constitutionally protected area, this is the physical trespass test is what Jones has come to be known as. When when an officer physically intrudes upon a constitutionally protected area, and a car is one, there's four constitutionally protected areas, four classes, persons, houses, papers, and effects. A car is an effect. Physically touching the car uh, by applying the GPS device to the undercarriage of it, that was the intrusion. And the officers intended to use that to collect information about Jones's whereabouts. So therefore, it was a search for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. And what that does is that now it triggers, obviously, the Fourth Amendment and all the rules that go along with it. You know, you got got to be reasonable. Do you need a warrant? You know, all those kinds of questions we would start asking. Well, if you apply that new definition, and it, it is it is a new definition. Um, before Jones, we had the the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy test. A, a search was an intrusion upon a reasonable expectation of privacy, and it still is. Jones did not eliminate that. Jones added to that. So we kind of have two, you can think of it as two separate definitions or uh, one definition with two parts to it. Um, but if we applied it to that, hood case um i think the the answer is pretty easy that if you apply that jones definition when you physically touch someone's car that's an intrusion upon their interest in the vehicle and it's called the physical trespass test and i saw a couple of comments well well we wouldn't arrest somebody for touching someone's car well this that's a difference between criminal trespass and civil trespass under tort law, which is, which is what this is based on. It's not based on criminal trespass. Uh, when we use the term trespass in this context, we're, we're more closely referring to that concept of tort law, which is just an interference in someone's possessory interest in their property. Mm-hmm. Simply walking on someone's land is a trespass to their land uh, under, under tort law. Um, it's just the physical act of being there that is, that is um, uh, intruding upon their interest in the, in the, in the land. And so, so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about something you get arrested for. That's criminal trespass. That has different elements. So when we touch the hood of someone's car, we're physically intruding on that car and our purpose for doing it is to, I'm assuming, find out if the car has been recently operated. So therefore, under the Jones physical trespass test, sounds like a search to me, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just the threshold question. So this is where everyone got so angry and upset. Well, oh, that's that's ridiculous. It's a search. He didn't do anything wrong. No one's saying anything wrong. They're just saying it's a search. Therefore, that means we need to look at what does the Fourth Amendment say about searches? They've got to be reasonable. And so I found three cases where the Jones test has been applied, and, and you're probably familiar with it. definitely two of them, the, the tire chalking case, uh, uh, Taylor versus Saginaw, city of Saginaw, where the, the parking agent was was chalking the tires for purposes of parking enforcement. And the court ultimately held that was a search under this Jones physical intrusion test. They're marking, they're physically touching the car with the intent to gather information about it, how long mm-hmm. it's been parked. Okay. Wow. Yep. So it's a search. They didn't say it was an unreasonable search. They actually ultimately held it was a reasonable search under the administrative search exception to the war requirement. Okay. And there was the, the uh, what was the case? Uh, uh, Richmond, the United States versus Richmond. This was out of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, it was a traffic stop where a trooper suspected that the guy might have contraband in his tires, for dr- like for drugs. So mm-hmm. he picked the tire to try and determine whether it was it was heavier than it would we would expect it to be. And of course um the, the court ultimately held that was a search when he kicked the tire under the physical trespass test. He did it with the he physically intruded with the intent to gather information. Okay. And once again, the court held that was a reasonable search. Ultimately, they just said it was a search, though. And then I did find one hood touching case. Uh, it was out of the, the First Circuit, I think. Yeah, um, Owens, United States versus Owens, where an officer touched the hood of a car to to uh, test if it was warm. And the court held it. They said it was a search, but they didn't really do. They they did no analysis. They just assumed it was a search. And then they went into whether it was reasonable to do that. All three of these cases, the court held it was reasonable for the officer to search the car in that manner. But it was a search nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Um, So the touching of the hood of a car, I think if you if you're applying the plain meaning to the definition coming from Jones, it's a search. Yeah. Now, is it reasonable under the particular circumstances? Sure. No one is saying you got to get a warrant to touch somebody's hood of their car to see if it's warm. Depending on the circumstances right. uh, of the situation, you could argue there's an exigency. Sure. Uh, you could tar- just you could argue it's just reasonable. There's there's a general reasonableness um, uh, evaluation that we can be done under the Fourth Amendment. There's lots of reasons we could justify it. the point, is, but the point is. It's a search, and that's really not that big of a deal. Um, It's just a threshold question.
0: Do we have to talk about how many times people are going to employ the hood touching thing, uh, where it's going to become a factor in court? Uh, Very infrequently,
1: where where that's going to be the determining factor or a PC element in a warrant request or something like that. I mean, but it's it's a search nonetheless. I mean, so you could be you could be sued for it. Um, I don't know how, many, how, many da- how much damage is you would be awarded, but it's still, it would be a, if it was unreasonable to do that, it would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. I think it would be hard-pressed to find situations where it would be unreasonable to touch the hood of someone's car to determine if it was warm in in, in some kind of investigative capacity.
0: Um, yeah. And I think that if you're thinking about that, it, it may be, uh, there could be exigency tied to it. Sure. The, the heat right. is
1: dissipating with every moment that passes. right. You know, and if 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 touching the hood of the car some, would would further this investigation, I think we certainly could argue that's an exigency. I need to touch it now because if I got to go get a warrant, by the time I come back, I'm not going to be able to tell anything about the the temperature of the car.
0: So. I find it interesting. I talk to people uh, nationally, and and they have difficulty uh, being able to get a telephonic warrant. They don't even have systems set up in place to try to get telephonics. Right. A lot of states don't. And do do all states allow telephonics?
1: Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'd be surprised if they did not. But there's a lot of places that don't have, like you said, the infrastructure, the, the ability to do it.
0: Right. And it's interesting to me because, I mean, if you're going to put us in a position where we have to err on the side of caution, quote unquote, uh, and, and listen, there are, are there many times you're going to have to err on the side of caution? No, but there are times you need a warrant. Right, and and if you're if you're uncomfortable about the exigency that you have, that probably means you probably don't have exigency, you know. Probably, yeah. And um, you know, especially if you work in the in an area that is, you know, maybe desolate. Uh, what do you do? And these guys are like, yeah, we don't. They don't even let us call for telephonics. What do you do? Like, why is there gonna be ninety different steps now to try to get a paper, handwritten warrant when a telephonic is is, is satisfies it? Well, the
1: the warrant process itself can be a factor in determining whether a warrantless search is
0: is reasonable. Yeah, and you yeah. know, unfortunately, that like people just aren't savvy enough to know how to navigate through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we've we've got people who don't understand. You know, listen, we've we've touched, uh, I don't know, twenty percent of law enforcement in the country. The question is, what's the rest of the eighty percent doing? And the bottom line is, it's what the other twenty percent was doing before. We yeah. educated them on some things. And it's not everything. We haven't covered every topic, but something as simple as not understanding how the automobile exception works on, on every facet. Um, namely, the biggest one is people think that they lose the exigency because the car is parked. And and for the purpose of this, I will discuss parked in a parking lot, a public parking lot. Um, you know, Unless your state differentiates or departs from the Fourth Amendment standard out of the Supreme Court, uh, it's been touched on many, several times that a car is inherently exigent, but there are people right now mm-hmm. who are in circumstances where they do not need to go and get a warrant who are playing either one or two games. They're going to get a warrant to search a car that's parked with probable cause or when they don't have to, or they're going to play the impounded inventory game. Which is more problematic, I think, than just without
1: oh, out a warrant. Yeah.
0: yeah I, it, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, People will argue, oh, well, you know, the 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 U.S. Supreme Court and the Constitution likes to see warrants. Well, yeah, of course, they don't want you intruding on people's property, but they've also given us exceptions to those warrant requirements for a reason. Not because it's like, if you need to use it, you know, go ahead, and you know, but we'd like to see you get a warrant. No, 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 they gave it to you because, look, don't fucking waste the court's time. You got it. Go ahead and search it. Yeah. So, what else do you want to talk about, Zach? Um, Well,
1: so this was uh, one more thing about Jones. You know, this goes back to what we talked about earlier in the the beginning of the podcast was, um, so we get a lot of comments. There were a lot of comments about, you know, this Jones and it being a search of the car to touch the hood. And I've heard several people say, well, Jones was a case about putting a GPS on a car. It has nothing to do with touching the hood. So why are you even mentioning that case? So here's a perfect example of why, if you don't understand what case law is and how it operates, you probably shouldn't be reading it. Yes, Jones was a case where that involved putting a GPS on a car. The court held it was a search. Uh, the important, the reason Jones is such a significant case is why the court held it was a search. They held it was a search because of the reasons I've already explained. So that's what the that's what we we take away from Jones. We don't take away that. Uh, yeah, the court ruled it was a search. They didn't have a warrant. Ultimately, the search was deemed to be an unlawful search. Well, that's great for Mr. Jones. That's great because he gets evidence suppressed in his criminal trial. But the big, uh, the overall uh, significance of Jones is this: this the fact that the Supreme Court has come up with a new definition of search that applies to any search, not just the search of a car by putting a GPS on it. Um, so understanding that yes, understanding the outcome of a case is one thing. So the outcome for the parties is one part of the case but the holding, which is the law of the case, is what is most significant to us. So just because the facts uh, are are involve completely different um, uh, topics doesn't mean the case is not applicable. Jones is absolutely the GPS case is absolutely applicable to a touching the hood of a car case. Mm -hmm. Um, so,
0: yeah, uh, and again, we're we're showing up. We're going to try to continue to give you guys as much as we can. Zach Miller, uh, you know, it's funny in Cleveland when I was there. Did anybody take Zach Miller's class? If you guys raise your hands, and I said, "What'd you think of it?" and they said, it "Was phenomenal." Like he takes a topic and makes it so enjoyable for two days to constitutional policing. But Zach is also also now teaching individual one day case law programs throughout the country. And you can find his stuff at streetcop.com. And I got to tell you, it's just a matter of time before people really, I mean, it's happening already, but really start understanding the importance of knowing the legalities of how you maneuver as a police officer in the field. And the reality is, is the investment, the minute investment to take a training course where somebody is going to communicate back to you into and, and digestible understandings of how case law works. To ensure and greatly increase the likelihood that you're not going to be find yourself in a civil litigation courtroom being sued for a Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment violation, whatever it may be, um, it's 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 baffling to me that anybody would consider this to not be one of the top priority things for you to know. And I've said this now. I I, I come. I guess I get philosophical, and I said, you know, it's interesting how we learn how to be cops. I don't think I said this to you. Something I came up with recently, I said, this is how we learn. We learn the streets, we learn then legal, and then we learn tactical. And what we should be learning is tactical, legal, then the streets. But it's done backwards every single time. Because you you get out, you learn the streets, you learn how to do things. And then you learn about, I think about all the things that I didn't know. I remember sitting in somebody's <laughs> in somebody's kitchen with this guy, my friend Jeff. We're on a job together. I was new. And uh, you know the woman goes, well, they're accusing me. Of something I didn't do and reporting it to the police, I went. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. And Jeff went. No, I actually think there's a law on that. I went, no, no, I don't. I, I haven't seen it ever, yeah. right? And I'm just like, I was new. I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. Yeah. Hey, if this happens, you know what I did know how to do? Shine my fucking shoes for the academy. I knew how to march really well. Why would nobody tell me this? So I think of all the times. Here's another big one for me. Um, I can't tell how many times we've shown up and taken what I'll use for here is misdemeanor case complaints where we could have taken law enforcement action. Although we couldn't have arrested, we could have charged. I mean, like six years into my job and finding out that although we could not satisfy the impress requirement by arresting somebody physically, if we had probable cause, we could issue a summons. I never knew this. Nobody knows this in New Jersey. So I'm like reading this and I go back to the patrol captain. I'm like, what the fuck is this? We actually even have books that we, have, we, have, we can bring in the field with us in New Jersey called special form complaint summonses. Uh-huh. You can write criminal charges on these things like tickets and hand them out like candy. You guys have a sim- something similar? A, oh yeah, our traffic summons and our criminal summons are identical documents. Okay, it's and great. We, yeah. Which makes a ton of sense. They should do one universal. So we got to carry two books in Jersey. So um, I never forget like starting to employ this, uh, especially when we had fights and we had it on video and we have... Uh, in our circuit courts and it's taught that witnessing a misdemeanor on a, on a closed circuit television does not satisfy the in of requirement You guys like, well, there's nothing we could do. Right. And, and I, and I, my response is yeah, there is, you just can't arrest them, but you can charge them. And how many times I felt bad not being able to do something, not knowing I could have done something right. Especially namely in simple assaults when it, there was a clear victim. Right. And like having lieutenants being like, yeah, nothing we could do, take the report. They want to file some charges, have them come in and see the court clerk on Monday through Friday eight to two at the at the window upstairs. All right. Once I found that out, forget it. I mean, not only that, but I kind of started a revolution where you'd have, uh, you know, fights at a Fridays. How's it going out there? All well, the uh, three units out there. How you guys doing? Yeah, we're good. We're just, we're working on our summonses right now before we take a report. But, you know, we're cops and we are the defender of the innocent. So now these guys are, are we're very, very comfortable and satisfied that we can now issue a summons because we couldn't arrest Mm -hmm. powerful tool and and, you know zach (laughs) as simple as it sounds there are cops who don't know this no idea
1: that seems like something you would learn on like the first day of the academy to me if i I was structuring an academy program we'd probably cover that on the first or second day
0: i have a funny feeling we're going to structure an academy program and hand it out to the world and as a matter of fact i have a funny feeling that we're probably going to get handed academy programs where it's gonna be a virtual academy and it's gonna be run by us because you cannot duplicate what we have as far as talent. And I think about this. I'm like, all right, there are a thousand to Jesus Christ, how many, how many academies in the country, right? There's gotta be thousands of them. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, we have 13 in New Jersey. Um, so and we're a small state. Mm-hmm. But then again, you go to like South Dakota. But some and have states one. only have one. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, There's there's definitely hundreds, definitely yeah. hundreds. Let's yeah. call it a thousand of them. Yeah. How could we, who has the expertise here to to be able to you know, um, confidently and competently train recruits. How can we have all of us? This is the people I've found so far in fucking five years of asking to join us. And we got thirty-two guys. How do I send thirty-two guys around to academies to teach the fifty thousand recruits to get hired every year? And the answer is you can't, but you can do it virtually. So I wouldn't be surprised as as this continues to unfold if we actually have a training product. And the first thing I'm going to actually offer to everybody is. Uh, when I have a little time to do this project is to write an academy syllabus on the things that I think. And like the first thing I'm going to get rid of is like, you know, I really don't think you need to be swinging a baton in a bag anymore. That's my first thing. Two is please don't spend six hours on the hydraulic and needle effect of a pepper spray can, right? <laughs> it's not super important that we know what the ulnar bone is in the handcuffing course and the gnoming, and have a seven question test on the The parts of a, I mean, you think of the ridiculousness of this. You have to know the nomenclature of a handcuff for a test. Every, I mean, the three of them, they all had the same test, same exact test. Um, I don't know. Do you need a full day on dieting as a law enforcement officer? Right? You think that has impact on people? And the answer is no. I do forget the one guy comes into our thing, my third academy. It was like law enforcement, physical fitness and dieting. He's like, yeah, you should work out like three times a week at a minimum. And for the fat guy in the back of the room, you should drink a glass of water before you go to bed, like a cold one, that'll slow your metabolism. That'll speed your metabolism. Up and I'm like, this is fucking nuts, man. Like It's just so ridiculous. Yeah. And and I I will call it like it is because I, I seek the change. And I don't just seek the change. I'm trying to implement the change and offer suggestions. And the good news is that people are receptive. There are academy directors who reach out to me like, what do you got? I heard that on the podcast. What do you got? I want to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know that's the first step. Have an open mind. Um, anyway, what else do you want to talk about?
1: Uh that that's probably good. I mean, we've been at about an hour
0: now. I mean, yeah, it's was, good. Yeah. You're yeah. funny, man. I I love it. You're just the best. You are a steadfast human being. It's just phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah. It's the best. It's, no, it's great. I always talk like Zach as steadfast as they come. You know, he he pretty easy going. You're easygoing and steadfast at the same time. It's wonderful. It's okay. the best. That is a compliment. It's, dude. It's the best. I, I I'm, I literally, uh, I actually put you on such a pedestal that I think some of the people get offended by. It. So I appreciate tremendously. And check out StreetCop.com or StreetCop Trading Facebook group our Instagram page. Uh, all these things going on. We have wonderful things happening around the world. And uh, Zach, it's a pleasure seeing you. Hopefully, we can do this sooner than later again. Absolutely, yeah. And check out Zach's classes, guys. I mean, you'd be foolish. He's going to be in Florida, Texas, California. He is all over the place and we will uh, we have an online program and we have all sorts of interesting stuff going on. So check out streetcop.com for all the information. And Zach, it was great seeing you again. We'll see you soon, my friend. See you around. Yep. Bye-bye.